Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport. Good to have you company. Uh, it is just on 8 o'clock. Uh, 8 seconds past 8 o'clock in the UK and also where I am, which is Portugal. Uh, I'm in the Intercontinental uh, on, at Estoril and thanks to being part of the uh, IHG Rewards Club and on the internet. I'm talking to you. Up in London is our executive producer, Tim Gray. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. It's almost like you're here next to me. It's Series 11, Episode 37. It is 8.01 here, though, by the way. Sorry? It's 8.01 here. It's 8.01, yes. probably is now. It was eight seconds past when I started talking. Um, on a packed programme tonight, we have... Uh, we have all the usual features, uh, and it's uh, episode 38, by the way, just because you weren't in uh, presenting episode 37, it uh, did happen. Hang on a minute. Are you sure? Yes. I've just looked at the website, and the last one there is 37. Yes, so today's 38. Oh, did I say it was 37? You did. Right, okay, carry on. Uh, we have all the usual features, news... Uh, we have some special guests joining us from uh, foreign climbs. Uh, we'll have uh, Graham Goodwin later. We'll have Marshall Pruitt. Uh, and we'll have Nick Damon. Uh, what we don't have is a pointless press release of the week, although there was uh, one which was quite close to being chosen. Really? Yes. Uh, have you heard of a racing driver called Will Burns? Will Burns. He was runner-up in the Genetta GT4 Super Cup this year. Right. And tomorrow he uh, is going to Snetterton to test a uh, touring car. And in the quote in the press release, it says, Ever since I was a child, I've wanted to drive a touring car. Excellent. Almost made it just because of that. Yes. But not Um, quite. The rest of it is quite sensible. So. uh, Not quite as pointless. Uh, right, so we're off and running. Uh, very few apologies for absence tonight, so we have a lot of people listening in live, including Sean Belby in uh, Indianapolis, Paul Parkin not preparing marshalling stuff for once, Mark Harrison says listening live uh, as well this week. No apologies for absence either, either for Jesse um, or for Christian Rodriguez. My goodness, everyone's listening uh, tonight. Chris Suku is uh, 
was flying back from work in India last Sunday, so he said he missed half the Bruno race and all of the Fuji race. So he's doing a bit of catch-up. But he is listening uh, to Midweek Motorsport this evening. Angus Fox uh, is uh, wants to talk about the number seven car getting excluded from Fuji. We'll talk about that with Graham Goodwin, editor of dailysportscar.com later on. Uh, Miggins Motorsport, listening live tonight. Uh, can Eve let us know what was on the menu? Um, she has seen that. Uh, she has told me from back at Hindorf Towers, and uh, she will be tweeting that shortly. Was she eating alone? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Michael Hetherington is an apologist for option. He is sat in the canteen waiting to start the night shift, so hopefully he'll be listening to us uh, later. And uh, thanks to Chris Will. For his thanks to us and our sponsors, he says, I'm looking forward to a pack programme tonight, which you will have, including special guests and potential uh, for a champion, a race winner, uh, just depending on who calls by, basically. You're expecting people to just walk into your hotel room. Is it like right room up. service? Yeah. Uh, can I have two drivers, please? <laughs> I expect them to bring a bottle of wine. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, there's a there's a whole new potential for a, a feature, isn't it? Drivers with wine. I like that a lot. <laughs> we had drivers Driver that sound ha- like wine, of course. Drivers that sound like wine. Yeah, do you not remember that? We did a whole grid of them. Oh dear, yes. We I had do, uh, I do remember Alex Gewurztraminer was one of them. Alex Gewurztraminer, yes, that was very good. Um, uh, um, drivers that bring wine, I like that idea. Uh, but we're going to start tonight with news of a world championship that has been won, for which we need... Well, our before form- we do this, I just want to say uh-huh. happy birthday right. uh, to one of our guests from last week. Who is? Uh, that would have been one of the uh, scholarship winners. Team USA. Team USA. That's, right. that's the words I was... Um, Team USA alumni. Yes. Well, they're not alumni yet because they're the current, uh, okay. current winners, aren't they? Right. So, which one of them had their birthdays? Uh, one of them has a birthday today. Uh, right. I'm just trying to work out which one it was. Um, the one that was sat on the left. <laughs> That's very funny. I did listen to that last week, as you know, from the. I can't believe it, actually. It, quite an interesting. This time last week, I was sitting on the end of the runway in an In-N-Out Burger car park at LAX. And uh, effectively, since the start of last week, I've done a lap of the world. And a bit, it was Kyle Kirkwood, by the way, whose birthday it was. That's right, yeah. I've done a, I've done a lap of the world and a bit more. Um, and I brought my last lap record for the lap of the world, which was done in the early part of this year, by about a week. So... <laughs> You did have to stop off in Sea uh, Bathurst that right. time. Yeah, so. yeah Bathurst. Uh, so, happy birthday to Kyle. And let's bring in Nick Damon, our Formula One correspondent. And good, say evening, good evening, John. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Hello. We're not talking about F1 first. We're talking about a, a, a series where they've declared a champion at the weekend. Now, oh, Nick, I I, two I series where that happened. Yeah, well, I, I can I, name more than two, and we'll be talking about all of them tonight. I didn't see any two-wheeled action this weekend, but I just, because I was either working or on a, on a plane, 
um, uh, all working again. And apparently, in a fantastic, uh, because I did read this somewhere, um, in a fantastic, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Train of events? No. Uh, don't, just, don't just throw words at me, it's not helping. Uh, <laughs> Broccoli. Display, thank you. Broccoli, that was exactly the word I was looking for. Always helps. Um, in a, fast, a fantastic display of multi-talented motorsport, apparently Tarso Marquez is a world champion. Is that right? But, but that'd be fantastic if he was. <laughs> Minardi I to MotoGP. That, that's, that writes itself as a, uh, as a small I did book see that. Somebody had written Tarso Marquez wins world wins uh, MotoGP championship. It wasn't that but it was Marquez. It was it was Mark Marquez who has oh. um, won the MotoGP con- world championship and his fifth world championship at the weekend at Twin Ring Montegi with a performance of basically doing what he's done all season in being quite quick but much cleverer than everyone else. <laughs> Um, because, as you know, the, the renaissance of Mark Marquez after falling off all the time last year, we've spoken about many, many times, but they kind of summed the whole thing up really here in that Rossi took pole. There were him and his teammate Lorenzo who had been fighting like cat and dog all season and had good weeks and bad weeks. Um, both sped off into the lead, shared the lead, and then both fell off um, mysteriously, apparently. It seems to me they're just pushing too hard. And um, to almost kind of amusing 1960s comedy music, uh, Mark Marquez just rode, rode, rode through the gap to win, get a 25 points more either, and become world champion in what is, I think, the summation of, of some of the most brilliant riding I've ever seen, because he, he has genuinely won a world championship on an inferior machine by a country mile. He has. He has. Um, uh, and uh, I know that he lost a little bit of kudos last year with the shenanigans, but you've got to say, a worthy winner this year. He's not always been able to get the results he wanted, but I think he's shown a bit more grit than people gave him um, uh, gave him credit for this year. Well, he's 23, and um, obviously he decided that at the age of 22 was when he was going to mature, because his maturity over the last year has been phenomenal he's changed from just using his pure pace and everything else and and uh, certainly with a with a, you know, realizing it hurts when you fall off and things don't mend as quickly as you get a bit older and he has used his brain quite rare in many um frontline motorsport uh, participants and he's out thought um the doctor and he's out thought lorenzo and he's let them fight amongst themselves and walked away with a championship he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have won and i'm sure yamaha's in jarvis is sitting around wondering where the heck it all went wrong because at this point, even the things like Rossi's engine failure to um, Mugello doesn't matter because he's 75, more than 75 ahead with three races to go. It's just been a bravado performance by a man who's completely changed his approach in effectively over two months over the winter. From, as you say, John, being a bit petulant, a bit silly, um, he obviously sat himself down had a good chat with himself and, mm. and the results are there for all for us to see. Yeah, I, I do think that was the... He, he couldn't really afford another season like the end of last year, I think he would have lost any uh, but the most hard line of supporters. He's actually rode pretty well this year. It's not often been easy for him. It's not often been pretty, but he's, he's, you know, he's picked up points in an ugly manner sometimes. 
Um, he's made a few mistakes, which in some ways might only endear him to people because he's proved he is human. Um, and uh, like I say, worthy, uh, worthy champion. Um, no, I'm, I'm not going to give you. I'm not giving any secrets. I, I already know who my nomination of man of the year is for the for the, for the awards. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. Massively yeah. impressed. Um, and I'm not a fan of his, you know. But I'm massively no, impressed. No, no, no. I know. I, 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 and he, I thought he'd rather blotted his copybook by being a bit of a whingy willick at the end of last year, um, and he's he's turned it around in my eyes. He, he's not been as sparkling. He's not been the wunderkind and wiped the floor with everybody. I, I think he's just gone about it in a very business-like manner. He's kind of... He's not exactly kept himself to himself, but he, he, he's done a pretty good impression of that, hasn't he? Well, if you combine blistering speed and suddenly you, in, you, you add on to that intelligence, it's, going to, it's got to be a worry for everyone else. Because in the past, you could say you knew he was going to throw it down the road a couple of times a season and give you a chance. Not doing it now, even with a bike that is lethal. And given that, as you mentioned, he's 23, he's not exactly coming to the end of his career. He may yet have his best years ahead of him. Um, it, it could be that over the next four or five years, he could completely dominate, particularly with the changing of the guard that you're going to see. You know, Rossi's coming to the end of his career. The, the problem is he doesn't have the charisma of Rossi. Um, well, he, yeah, but no one does. And that, In but that is, who else has that charisma or that ability to, to energise a, a, a crowd? But don't you think that's a problem for the championship? Yeah, I think, I think obviously it helps that he's managed to... The, the, Marquez is, 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 is a, is a likeable chap these days. He's certainly more likeable than Lorenzo, who really isn't likeable, let's be honest about it. It's not that you have to be likeable to win a world championship. It's not the key thing. But as you say, with a, with a series that has effectively run the coattails of one person for the last, what, 12 years, um, perhaps more than that, actually, 15 years, um, they need something who's at least relatively popular. And certainly if he continues doing this, which is, which is riding, riding quickly and not being a, a sport brat, that'll improve. I think next... Which is interesting because next year, um, you know, Ross hopefully can stay at the high level he was. Um, he's a, hasn't got Lorenzo in his head next year because Lorenzo goes to um, Ducati. He's got Vinales, who they appear to get on reasonably well with, and, and I'm sure he feels he can best him for at least a year. So you've got Marquez next year on his own. You've got Vinales, uh, sorry, uh, Rossi without a major competitor in his team. Of course, um, uh, Lorenzo doing Ducati. So I think possibly it might be, it, it should be a good, more even, more even playing field mentally. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see a really, really close scrap, though. You know, there's nothing, you know, this year has not turned out as I expected at all. And, and that's entirely down to one man. Um, what's your thoughts? It's, we're already in a silly season. What's your thoughts on uh, Nicky Hayden returning with Honda? Well, it's just come back to sub for Danny Pedroza, who is, who's broke his collarbone in an accident. Uh, Pedroza's signed for next year. Um, Hayden obviously is stepping up from the World Superbikes where he's done a reasonable job but hasn't really got many points because I don't think the Honda's really up to it compared to the Ducati and the Kawasaki and, and I'm sure we'll mention Superbikes in, in, in passing uh, later. Um, he's a good choice. He knows he knows the GP bike. He knows the team. He's a good person to draft in but they if they're going to say if Pedroza cannot come back for next season then it, it would make an awful lot more sense if they're going to draft someone into the main team to be you know a crutchlow or somebody on the satellite bikes who's in, who's in the season permanently but as a as a couple of race sub Nicky Hayden's a great is a great choice uh well let's move on then uh we should say the season's not over in MotoGP 
Um, but in terms of... Philip Island this weekend? Yeah, in terms of championship, it is. Philip Island, one of my favourites. Of course, this was the start of the spats last year. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens 12 months on. Uh, I think I might have to find some way of watching it in the early hours. The uh, Let's talk about superbikes. Yep, World Superbikes. And um, who has won five of the last six races? Uh, because who, who who wins all the races in Superbikes? Johnny Rear. No, try again. Um, Did it begin I with don't. a C? It does, but then it, it, it's a, a remarkable ch- turnaround because the person who's won five of the last six races is Chaz Davis on the oh, unloved yes, Ducati Panigale, which has suddenly found its found its feet uh, at the back end of the season. I don't know what they've done to it. They were, I've, I've, I've been listening intently to find what they changed or whether they just found a magic bullet, but a bike they've not been able to get working for is it four seasons now, John, is it? It's the fourth yeah. season Panigale, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, suddenly is working and say so it's won several it's won five of the last six races in multiple in both dry changeable and wet conditions and it won both the races at Jerez last weekend um, it's debatable whether um, Johnny Ray was absolutely at full going for it because he was literally ticking up points because he's actually not competing with Chaz Davis he's competing with his teammate Tom Sykes I think they they swapped seconds and thirds the net result is with one race to go in Qatar uh, Johnny Ray has a 48-point lead with um, the maximum score, I think, being 50. So he's really um, nothing but you know, virtually assured of the whole thing. But again, something else that does bode very, very well for seasons going forward. There's no technical changes in World Superbikes next year. And if Ducati have finally managed to find what the problems were, the Panagali, and sort it out, then that's a great sign. We might start getting a much, much closer battle at the front um, moving forward. British Superbikes yeah. had its season finale <laughs> uh, at the weekend at Brands Hatch. Uh, going into the weekend, which was a triple header, uh, it was a straight fight really between uh, Shane Byrne and Leon Haslam. Uh, how did uh, Leon Haslam uh, do in the first race, Nick? Particularly badly. He made one, two, well, well it depends whether you count Druid's Heaven as two corners. Like, he made three corners and fell off. Yes. <gasps> he did not. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was damp race. Actually, no, it, was, it was damp to very wet during the race. Um, Shaky Burn then settled for I think fifth or sixth what, in that first it, race. Was it not equally damp for all the riders racing on in that race at the same time though, Nick? Oh yeah, no, it was yeah. it was a it was a That's silly a fair point. But it is very. It, it, I think the, the, the what it's hard. The point is, it's very hard to to explain. And, and driving in the wet is difficult, but you get a lot more chances to get it back if you have a light slide. In the wet, you on a bike, you lose it you're gone there's no way of getting it back if you lock the front end it's gone i think he actually had a, a, a sort of a complete out of shape moment trying to avoid the back of someone and then just went down quite heavily um but yeah that obviously opened the points up lead again for for, for for shaky and shaky managed to get oh, ducati ducati going very well at the moment well mm-hmm. apart from most gp but um they now have a british super bike championship with with shane Byrne. it must be what 63 now is he shane it's his is, is it 1994 all over again Fifth British title. Yeah, I mean, five titles, and as we discussed last time, it's only two different types of bike, but he keeps alternating between Kawasaki's and Ducati, but he wins them on. Um, The Pirelli National Superstock 1000 Championship uh, was won by by someone uh, with a name that might be familiar. Uh, Certainly a surname that would be familiar. 
Sheen. Taylor McKenzie. Oh, really? Ooh. Wow. Okay. Because um, Taylor, Taylor is not McKenzie's son, was doing the, was going through the whole um, motor GP ladder, wasn't he? He was doing the Spanish um, small capacity bikes and didn't he do, GP, um, not GP3, Moto3 as well. There's a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of people doing um, many things in uh, junior bike racing, aren't there? Nobody sticks to uh, one particular category, and uh, certainly the lot of. I mean, if you look at the names he beats in this championship: Ian Hutchison, Michael Rutter, um, people like that. Um, it's it was a very got, competitive. And is he going to have a ride in it? Does he have a ride in the big show next year? Well, he's done it before um, on occasion, so I can't see why he wouldn't. Um, I want to talk also about the Dickies British Super Sport Championship, uh, which was won by... We talk, I'll, I'll just go... Mm. No, I'll be going... Because mm, I didn't follow that one, mate. <laughs> that would be Taron McKenzie. Oh, OK. <laughs> really? Yeah. Lots of I see they go with this too. Yes, uh, I can't find any other bike championships that have been won by a McKenzie this season, though. Well, they're stacking, aren't they? Honestly. Uh, so does Obviously that, in the jeans, though. Does that cover all of our four-wheel championships? Two wheels. Two, two, wheel two wheel championships. Oh, yes. We're not anywhere near covering the four-wheel ones yet. Um, shall we cover four wheels? Two champions and one almost champion, yeah. Yes. Uh, well... Four champions and one almost champion we've talked about. Uh, should we talk about some four wheels? Can do. Uh, because there was a four wheel championship that uh, declared a champion at the weekend. And that was the World, World Rally Championship. Oh. <laughs> just, just because you've got Nick on. And for the eighth year in a row, it was a Frenchman called Sebastian. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Sebastian Ogier. Um not really a surprise, is it? No, there's only something in no, rounds. Like Nick? Mm. No, it was no surprise. I like to put a DTM did finish this year this week as well, didn't it? Uh, do you want to talk about DTM then? No, yes. I just wanted to, you just kind of poo-pooed me. I thought I got it wrong. That was all. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm quite happy to talk about DTM. We, I don't think we talk enough about DTM on the, on this show. Congratulations oh. to Michael Vittman and the BMW M4. Uh, well done to him. And congratulations to Google for getting me there quick enough to, to, to say that. Uh, Aren't we, uh, we have to... Don't we have to have two mandated uh, uh, parts of DTM? One in the first part of the show and one in the second part of the show. Uh, Not how it works. So uh, maybe in the second part of the show we'll talk <laughs> about how uh, next year um, the car count will be slashed. Yes, slashed. they're going down from 24, from 24 to, to likely 18, isn't it? Uh, so a quarter of the field will That's be gone. A click bit headline. Uh, uh, do you want to move on to Formula One? Do you want to move on to Formula One? Yeah. We do seem to be losing John a bit, so I'm going to disconnect and uh, reconnect uh, John uh, while I talk to Nick about a uh, modern Bible story. Oh, this sounds exciting. Go on, then. Are you not aware of this? 
The thirty uh, no. I think the thirty second book of the Old Testament. What what would that be? <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, I don't know, Judges one. It is Jonah. Oh right, okay, uh, and a whale. Jo- Jonah was uh, was inside a whale, wasn't he? He was. Yes. Well, the He's still. I'm still failing to see the link here, but keep going. Well, I read this morning that uh, Lewis Hamilton's going to be in COD. Oh. <laughs> Very good. Yes, he is. I, I, I'm surprised this one didn't go down to whether pointless press release or most surprising press release of the, uh, the year. Yep, the, you can play or, or as Lewis Hamilton in Call of Duty. So uh, Lewis will be available as a, as a skin, I suppose, or a character, playable character, and you can either be, you can be your mate um, and uh, you know, stick up for you, so make sure you don't call yourself Nico, for goodness sake, um, and, uh, and go on missions with you. And you it's know what? Be... This is a fantastic example of why, for all his faults in his Snapchatting, Lewis Hamilton is the best thing for, to happen to Formula One, because he's the only person engaging with people under the age of 25. Um, that's not true. You've gone quiet, John. Can you speak up a bit? That's not true. Sorry. All right. Who else is engaging with... with, Well, perhaps I'll give you Max Verstappen because he's 18, but who else is engaging engaging outside the box in ways that are bringing new eyes to the concept of a racing driver than Lewis? Well, do you think that the people who play Call of Duty and have a a Lewis Hamilton character in it are going to go and watch Formula... go and seek out Formula One and watch it? There's much, much more chance because if you if you've heard of someone and you're channel hopping and you land on it, you're more likely to see. Oh, what well, I've you know I've just done a I've just oh, it's tenuous. I've just done a mission with him down to go and shoot some foreigners, but now I can go and see what he can do on a racetrack. I think I think it's uh, it's, an, it's a, those sort of times and that sort of, of, of cross referencing between between media is what F1 needs to survive. F1's problem, as we all know, is has an aging audience and it is, and it needs to to no 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 no, no. F1. F1's problem is that it's uh, it's put itself into major outlets that aren't available to the general public, or the general public don't want to pay to watch. That's the biggest problem that F1's got. It doesn't. Uh, it, it. I. I agree that there's some. That, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that. Even by Formula One's own ridiculous figures, where more than twice the number of people on the planet are actually work- watching it, um, <laughs> it's it's fallen by thirty three percent. But however, the good news is that now that the asset strippers of CVC have gone, there's an opportunity for the new owners, who are surprisingly a major company, rather than someone who just wants to take all the money out of the sport, um, for them to do something perhaps slightly more sensible when particularly when negotiating major rights deals i i agree with you but i still think that you need to engage um the younger generation because the old generation will die it's unfortunate what happens to us if the product is right nick if the product is right the younger generation will engage with it if it isn't they won't well, There's that's no an interesting thing, and I'm sure it's a question that many beardy people in Hoxton are thinking about right now. Is it, is, you know, is it, you can have a good product, but how do you actually engage with people who are seeing it on their social media feeds and aren't seeing it? You know, and I, I'm not going to say I particularly uh, agree with everything they say, but I think it's very true. The demographics of Formula One are not are not where they should be compared to 20 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Can I Which is that interesting. They aren't gone completely. They are still quite a significant shareholder in Formula One. Yes, they. But they don't have voting rights on the board, so they won't be in, in uh, able yes, to. Yes, they do. Uh, no, they don't. They. I've, I've just been reading about it today, and according to Nigel Roebuck, they don't. That's interesting because they had a seat on the board. They were given a seat on the board of uh, Liberty Media, which is going to become F1. I don't. Well, it may be that they don't have. Um, anyway, that doesn't that doesn't matter. Their days of raping the sport of uh, and just taking loads of money out of it, hopefully, of God. Um, the uh, I, I I I I think in, it's interesting, Nick, because. What you say, because one of the things that anecdotally, I mean, it's not like we run scientific surveys on this, but we do seem to be getting more younger people into our part of the sport and, um, you know, people in their mid to late teens are coming to endurance motor racing. um, And uh, does that mean that endurance motor racing is doing a, uh, a better job? In social media, in uh, in what it's doing, or does it just mean that they that they they're doing that the product is better? I, I don't know. I think you have to look at what, you have to look at the base numbers, and 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 the base numbers for F one are still oh, I don't know what twenty times, fifty times WEC. Depends how um, you measure them and who you believe. And, yeah, but I mean, I think even well, even the most basic point, if you just take the numbers of people watching a race in Germany or the UK, and then look at the number of people watching a race, a WEC race, you know, I'm not saying that's the, the arbiter of quality or the arbiter of what's better, I'm just saying it's a, as, a, as a pure number. Then obviously within that, there are going to be millions more young people engaged with um, uh, F1 than are engaged with WEC. The percentage of, of young people within that um total number may be greater in WC. Maybe I could say uh, 27% of people who watch WEC are below 25 and it's 21% of people who watch F1 but there's still 25 times more people at least watching F1 and, and, and that is and it, and it will ever be so unless they completely louse it off because they've given it a good go over the last 10 years and still haven't managed to louse it up that much. Um, but well, they've lost by, even by even by their own figures, Nick. They've lost a third of their audience in less yeah, than ten but, years. Well, I, I do agree. The, the biggest threat is to come, and that's the the next move starting in the UK in nineteen, isn't it? And I think it'll then spread everywhere else, where it goes pure pay per view, and we're, and we're back to British Test cricket again, aren't we? Yeah, and the issue with that is that the numbers of people who are watching on pirated streams um, are going through the roof, and those unrecorded numbers are difficult to get ahead round, um, and I know Formula One are particularly aggressive in um, pulling them back uh, and and trying to get rid of those uh, thieves, content thieves. Um, but I, I think I think there's lots of things that Formula One could be doing to increase its profile with everybody, not just with you, the youth, but with everybody, rather than Lewis Hamilton being in a video game. And the other part yeah, about that, that, that is that that, that, is, that, that is a would particular... have cost, Yeah, but that wouldn't have cost Formula One anything. That's just something Lewis has done in his spare time whilst talking to rappers and, and hanging around with, with, with people who are relatively cool and wearing hats. So, um, you know, and I think it's quite... I, I just think, I think anything, any, any crossover stuff is, is good, I personally think, for the overall health of the sport. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think there's other things that are more important than that in terms of getting the product right, in terms of getting the overall major strategy right. And I, I don't think, on the other side of that, I don't think that Lewis does himself or the sport any good by being disrespectful to national major journalists on the only time that they get to talk to, to drivers. If you want to look like a petulant fool, then fine, look like that. Well, he's, um, he's got another chance tomorrow, hasn't he? Because they've, they've, uh, they've called him up again, haven't they, for the, uh, the press conference tomorrow? They have not. Well, on the yeah. basis that he didn't take any part in last week, so he needs to do it I again. Just think they, they, I just think they just want to show who's boss. Mm. Okay, moving on. Uh, where are they at the weekend? Uh, Austin. They are indeed. Um, Grand Prix of the Americas at Circuit of the America, USA Grand Prix rather Circuit of the Americas. Um, always interesting to watch because you never know what's going to happen there. Uh, it might happen, it might not. There could be a large pink pussy cat that knocks them all off the track, or just a rainstorm. It's a good track for F1. It is a good F1 track. Um, yeah, I think I, I think it's a good track. Full stop. Actually, in terms of the layout of the track, I think it's. Um, Tilt's excesses were curbed by the intervention of uh, it was Alex Verts, wasn't it? Who was the? Um, no, was the, wasn't it David Coulthard got involved? Yeah, I think David, but certainly, uh, certainly Alex's company was involved in it as well. Hmm. Well, anyway, it's a good track, and it, it has that one thing that really helps any sort of track, which is a nice amount of elevation. Right? Mm, agreed, absolutely. Uh, who's going to win? Well, it needs to be Lewis, or it's all game, it's game over, isn't it? Really, Lewis needs to win. Um, that goes without saying. But even if he wins all four races, if Nico's second all four times, Nico's still a world champion. So Lewis needs to win, and he needs to have an event where something happens that knocks Nico off his stride and, and loses a few points. The ideal thing for the championship, I'm not wishing this happen, is that is we get reverse of Malaysia and uh, and Lewis wins and. Uh, uh, Nico blows up. It's not going to happen, but it would obviously open everything back up again. Um, so if if Lewis won all the last four of the races and Nico didn't win any more, Lewis would have ten race victories to Lew- to Nico's eight, but Nico would still win the championship. Yes, he came second every time. Yeah, hmm. but there's no evidence on recent form that's going to happen. Well, Lewis is, I mean, Lewis is still the faster driver, so presumably, if everything else is equal, then Lewis, he's got every chance of winning the next four races well, uh, in the same yeah, race. I mean, he ran uh, four races in the middle of part of the season. Yeah, apart from the fact that um, luck just hasn't gone that way, Nico's driving very well, um, there's no, you know, you would think that if you were going to put, put some money on it, you would think that, that Lewis have a very good chance this weekend. But when you get to Brazil, Brazil, Nico's always been very, very good in Brazil. And Lewis hasn't been that good in Brazil. So you have particular circuits, which which some drivers are naturally good at and, and others are naturally average at. So it's going to take a bit. It's, it's now out, it's out of Lewis's hand. It's going to take some misfortune for Nico. And it's going to take some unbelievable drive from Lewis to win it now. But. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me if Lewis did win the last four races, is what I'm saying. Uh, I think that's very unlikely. I think he might win three, but I think he'll win four. And do you think that the reliability on Nico's car will be enough to see him through? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is what it, Lewis's lack of reliability is down to what's commonly known as that terrible thing called 
bad luck. And if you look at the rest of the Mercedes engine cars, don't forget there's six others on the grid, um, they're all pretty bulletproof. It's just Lewis had some bad luck, and that's what that's just what happens. Sometimes you're unlucky. Is it the way he drives? No, you can't. You see, you can't miss a gear now, and you can't over rev. So. He's actually, you know, been proven that when we had those fuel readouts to actually be more economical on the car than, you know, so less stress in the car than Nico was. Effectively, if you look at the thing, if he hadn't, if his engine hadn't blown up, if and buts, I know, but his engine hadn't blown up in Malaysia, which is a freak occurrence with a failure of a, um, an oil way which led to a bearing failure. Without that, the difference would be currently Nico would be three or four in the lead. So, but... And that, you know, in times gone by, when you and I watched the sport, John, and started watching the 70s and 80s, you blew up six times a season and you finished the other eight races if you were lucky. So mm. individual, individual explosions weren't as massively important as they are now. And this is a problem. When you get to near-perfect reliability, imperfect reliability suddenly is so much more of a handicap. Yes. Uh, okay. Any more on F1 from you, Tim? Oh, plenty. Right, come on then, crack through. It's desperately important to me that I say what I want to say in a manner that conveys not only the answer to the question, but also the contextual perspective that's made that answer appropriate. That'd be Ron Dennis then. What's he doing? Uh, nothing. Or every, or leaving, or staying, or leaving, or being sacked, or not having enough money to buy out the company, or not doing anything, depending on which of the 112 different reports you read today. Mm. What mm. do you think he's doing? Well, he is the main rumor that came round was that he is going to be removed as chairman and CEO of McLaren Group, and that's like gone completely, not involved, not stepping back, not taking sabbatical, like out on your ear, Ron. Um, despite the fact, of course, he owes twenty-five percent of the shares. I think the other seventy-five percent, twenty-five, is owned by Mansur OJ, and fifty percent, I'm going to say, is Bahrain, but it might be Qatar. It's one of the one of the uh, Middle Eastern countries owns it as a, you know, a, a national holding as such. Um, Ron had a year or, two, or a while to get the money together to buy out enough to give himself control over it. Apparently, he hasn't got the money together. I'm putting the money together. He will be fired. Or oh, sorry, his contract will not be renewed at the end of the year. Very so really? he, he won't be at the team anymore at all. Um, but he's saying, nope, that's not true. I will. And we don't know the truth. So there we go. It'll not be the same without Ron there, will it? I mean, they'll have to move as well because... They, they are actually live in Ron world. It is the greatest of grey environments, and that is all Ron. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously they tried to get slightly spec more, more, more sunshine with uh, Martin Whitmarsh, and that didn't go particularly well. Uh, they fired Martin. Uh, they got Josh Capito's coming now to take over some of the, the F1 running. Um, because McLaren is a lot more than, than just the race team. I think people seem to forget, you know, the, the, the amount of money they make out of the electronic side of things, the control technologies, and, of course, the road cars. So it's a, it's a much, much bigger organisation than, than it was when Ron took over. Uh, Project 4 and merge it with Teddy Mayo's McLaren back in 19, I guess now, 1980 was that? Was it 79? Well, serious question though, without Formula 1, would McLaren be McLaren? My answer to that would be probably no, nowadays. I mean, I'm old enough to remember McLaren sports cars, but really, without the continued, well, I was going to say the continued success, but in the last half a decade, it seems, uh, the continued, I was going to say competition, um, the continued turning up for Grand Prix. <laughs> um, I mean, what they, they can't surely be thinking about leaving Formula One. No, no, no it's, 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 not, it's entirely an, uh, a, a power struggle at the top of a, of a large company. Um, and 
they are uh, the road cars are making money. The other you know, the drive line and everything else is making money. The only thing that's probably a bit of a drain on resources is F1, but they're obviously taking most of Honda's money for that. Um, so it's more about you know personalities and and, and ways of running te- teams and uh, everything else. So yeah, I mean it'd be sad if Ron goes. He is 69, so he might want to slow down a bit. But um, McLaren will stay in F1, and and that will continue to help them sell um, the sports cars as much as of course the success in in GT3 does. Mm, very good. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport Series 11, Episode 38. Um, are we going to let Nick disappear now? Yes. No. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much, particularly for all your hard work at the weekend as well, Nick, uh, with the team at the uh, Bruno 24 Hours. Can I, can I, I need to say something. Because mm-hmm. after all that we built up, Joe and I, it was the loveliest weather I've done a race in for years. I just the right number of I've never <laughs> been so happy in a pit lane. And it sounded like you had a good idea. I listened to quite a lot of it, actually. And it sounded like you had a good time. I know that some of the guys... Um, disappeared at the end of the 12 hours which was a tad disappointing um mm. but it sounded like it was a good event and it will be 24 hours of double points next year um for the for the championship two cars and only next year though isn't it sorry uh, Sigurd, yeah. uh, yes it's moving forward it's moving forward in the championship yes that's right yeah i mean the the key point about that was we sat down with natasha from Graventic. we went through all the championships and just by sheer bad luck virtually every single one was decided which is why, obviously, people decide not to come to the race, which is why there are only 28 entries rather than 55, because people weren't, you know, it's a, it's a big commitment to race 12, 24 hours when there's not a championship at stake. So they, obviously, Creventic, because of Creventic, are clever, went, fine, that isn't going to happen again. Double points, final round. <laughs> Very good. All right, thanks, Nick, and thanks for your work at the weekend. Cheers, man. See you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, it's uh, Midweek Motorsport. Our executive producer is Tim Gray. He's up in London. I'm in Estoril for the ELMS this weekend, we'll have a word with Graham Goodwin from DailySportsCar.com at the moment, in a moment or two. But I am joined. Stand- my room service has arrived. Yes, I ordered a driver. I, I closed my agency of Nick's there. Uh, your room service has arrived, yes? Yes, my room service has arrived. I ordered a driver and I got an ELMS champion. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex Brundle. Very quick service, I heard, here in the Intercontinental. Yes, uh, be loud. You have to speak oh, loud speak into loud. this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on the LMP3 Championship. Thank you, yeah. Uh, delighted. Whole team are delighted. And um, pressure's off for this one, he said, laughingly. Um, we've still got to perform, though, and do a good job. Uh, you were out last weekend in Fuji as well. We'll talk about that in the second half of uh, the programme tonight with Graham. Um, enjoyed getting back in the P2 car as well, though? Absolutely, yeah. We had a great run um, mm. to, to, to take the race win there. Um, really, really hard fought. It was a mega race, wasn't it? Was. it? Absolutely awesome. Were you aware of how good generally the race was, both in your class and, and overall? Or were you, I mean, obviously you were in the middle stint, so you were either psyching yourself up or going, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen? But were you aware what was going on? Yeah, you, you know what's going on. And also, you know when there's a race like that with no stoppages in it. Mm you know it's going to be a bit of a humdinger because you know how close all of the lineups are and all of the cars are because you see it play out all the way through free practice. So you know that, and as you pass the, the GT battle and as the P1 battle passes <laughs> you, it's always like, oh, blimey, they're, they're getting after it. So you can see the battles going on out, out on circuit, um, but specifically our race, I knew it was close because I was in it. You had a, a, a brilliant 
central stint. I'll bring you back to this weekend and to the championship uh, in general, if I, if I may. You never know what's going to happen in the first year of a, a championship, but 20 cars plus for most of the season has been absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it's been a, a really great year for LMP3, and it doesn't show any uh, any signs of slowing down, does it? There's, I think it was the 50th Ligier uh, I saw just a, a couple of weeks ago in uh, in Snetterton, actually, uh, for the for the prototype cup. And um, the, the the thing is just becoming massive now. This series uh, so well um, attended and a high level of competition as well, which is great. LMP3 cars, we've talked about this before, they are proper race cars, aren't they? Absolutely. Carbon tub. And it feels like a baby P2. Mm. The, the management of the tyre is a little bit different. The driving style is a little bit different, as is to be expected. But that prototype feel, the more prototype feel is there. Um, as you can see, when they, they threw the things out around Le Mans, mm. and it wasn't like, oh, no, this doesn't work. All of a sudden, straight away, you know, pound, 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 and with intents on the lap times. So. Um, we heard at the weekend about the rookie test at Bahrain. Disappointed that your name wasn't forward there? Yeah, I think it's always a bit disappointing when you don't get an opportunity like that. Um, congratulations to the, the three guys that, that did get that opportunity. I guess I've just got to show something else uh, in, in the coming years. I mean, I did only join the series... Um, midway through the year uh, I've taken a championship this year and now a race win um, hopefully even though that uh, that particular opportunity is passed in the final couple of races of the WEC I might be able to show something and jump in a car even still it is all about wins for G-Drive in the last couple of races championship is, is not on the cards but with you with Roman Rusinov and is Will Stevens in for the rest of the year is Rene Rast coming back I think it depends on another commitment for Rene Rast so uh, I think you know what that commitment is don't you Um, so uh, up in the air as as it stands but uh, I think the likelihood is we will have Will back for China not shoddy by the way is he no very good (laughs) no he did a great job absolutely great job and a really really nice vibe in the team as well Uh, we work uh, together really really well um, he's a, quite a mellow influence which is nice and as I said just race wins to go for in some ways does that take the pressure it's a different it doesn't take the pressure off but it's a different kind of pressure you're not racing for second place you're not racing for a result you're not racing for a championship you can be quite aggressive on strategy which you guys were actually at the weekend I think also in LMP2 all of the drivers and the teams and the engineers and the personnel everybody is pushing as well to to show themselves, to demonstrate their performance. So no matter where the car is or what's going on in the grand scheme of things, you you have to still deliver the performance because that's what sports car racing is all about. And you can't, if you know, just because there's not a championship on the line, no manufacturer wants a driver that's going to cruise as soon as, uh, you know, you're not going to win a series. So I think you have to get in it and get on whatever's going on around you. How soon do you start thinking about next year or are the discussions already taking place? Don't need you to give any secrets away. Sure, there are discussions going on all the time, all, all over the paddock, but they intensify probably through October normally. Um, we normally start talking about it in October and then end up stressing about it in February still. <laughs> but um, I think this year might be a little bit calmer um, 
and uh, a couple of really good things lined up. Um, I'd love to go and do some IMSA racing as well. Um, angling, I'm really angling towards some IMSA racing as well as the you know the the massively good competition in the in the WEC. Quite uh, a low number of clashes in IMSA. Uh, next year with WEC and the likelihood is that in fact in terms of prototype race there could be very few indeed so there's an opportunity to do possibly even a full IMSA season or a nearly full IMSA season and still do the WEC would that be the perfect solution? I think that is a pretty serious program I think Ryan Dial has done that before um, just off the top of my head and he did look pretty tired when he turned up to some of the wet races to be honest but that would be mega, you know, if I could put something like that together. I mean, getting into one of the full season lineups in IMSA requires quite specific focus on that series. Uh, what I would say probably is more available to a guy like me is to join a very, very strong prototype team for, you know, an NAC challenge. Um, I think he's probably a more realistic prospect and something that I'm making contact and driving towards as much as possible. Congratulations on the championship this year in the uh, the LMP3 uh, uh, series in the ELMS. In doing that, and also means United Autosports, of course, have got a Le Mans entry for, for next year. There's a smile on Alex's face, even as I say that. Um, can you even dare think about that and would it necessarily is there an opportunity to do something with Richard for next year, Richard Dean from United Autosport? Well, essentially it's not my decision. Uh, I'm, I'm not running the team. Do, you know, I don't, don't look like a man in charge, as you well know. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, so I guess I'll wait and see. Um, they've not made a decision yet about, uh, about what they're going to be doing. So uh, United are an awesome outfit, as you've seen all year in ELMS. Um, and if they did want to go PT racing, that'd be something that obviously be very interesting. And they could do it. There's no doubt about that. Oh, without without a shadow. Um, the question is, you know, in this specific the specific practicalities of their scenario as it stands financially and otherwise, can they can they achieve it? And that's not for me to say. That's for you know Richard Dean and, and Zach to just uh, to, to say. Um, enjoy this final round of the season and. There's a, a bit of a shindig on Sunday night where you get your trophy. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Actually, looking forward to it. And uh, I think it's going to be a great moment as well for, for Christian and, and Mike and the team. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing all their faces when that goes off. Thanks for popping in. Uh, unexpected. Alex Brundle joining us here live on Midweek's Motorsport Series 11, episode uh, 37. Graham Goodwin, 38, excuse me. Graham Goodwin was listening uh, to that. Um, a well-balanced young man with a very good drive this season in ELMS and an exceptional drive. Yeah, it continues to be impressive, doesn't it? And uh, I have to say, it's a mark of the quality of Alex's driving over the last few seasons that actually I had to double and triple check that it was indeed his first WEC win. It was. And uh, congratulations to him and to the G-Drive team for that. Um, He's absolutely right, by the way, John. That was an absolutely astonishing six-hour race and an astonishing race meeting superlatives all round records broken left right and center um what an absolute privilege once again to be there and to call it uh talk about that in a minute um let's quickly focus in on what's going on here not so very far from where i'm sitting at the moment on the seafront at esteril 
uh, we've got the final round of what, the ELF. The I, I, I tell you what, mate, I could, I could throw an olive from here to the beach, uh, a cocktail <laughs> olive uh, from here to the beach, uh, even with my pathetic arm, um, never failed in the outfield, always used to field in the covers. Um, it, it, the ELMS has confounded people uh, this past couple of seasons. Um, it was dead. We've talked about this before. Um, LMP3, as we've documented, has been extraordinary. Um, GTE uh, has been extraordinary. LMP2 has been brilliant as well. It has been a series worthy of the regional, the European title. And quite frankly, as I say, has confounded some of the so-called experts who, who pronounced that it would never come back to its glory days. And yet the competition this year, and you've seen most of it, with the four-hour races, has has been pretty good. It's been very, very good. And uh, what it's doing, I think, is what it's designed to do, which is to give, you know, uh, a high level of competition on, the, as you say, the regional level, but also to provide a staircase that, that basically keeps the WEC above it as a kind of an aspirational force in, in the package. I mean, it's a big step in money terms for any team to, to make that step. I think we're going to see one or two do it into 2017 if plans go uh, the way I expect them to. But um, you know, as for the entertainment, it's been great fun. Seen all the races so far this year. I'll be across with you in Estoril at some point tomorrow. And, uh, you know, this one again goes down to the wire and it just goes to show, doesn't it, LMP2 in its current form. And let's keep our fingers crossed that it, it, it uh, lives up to it next year with the, the quicker cars. LMP2 in its current form provides great entertainment. It's uh, plenty of variety, if not in the engine compartment, where we've got a couple of Juds, but the rest Nissans. But, uh, uh, and also a nice mix of properly pro-am and sort of pro-am but uh, then you get the likes of Pierre Thierrier and Simon Dolan into the mix and they are proper gentleman drivers who are very very good at what it is that they choose to do in their spare time um, Talking about United Autosports there, there's a championship won, there's a Le Mans entry captured for the Yorkshire's finest um, Richard Dean, I think, telling you last week he didn't know he had so many friends till he, till everybody started realising he had a, an automatic uh, Le Mans entry. Um, what about the other championships? Um, how are they standing? And you know, are they cut and dried? Is it a question of rolling the cars out on the grid? What's uh, what's the situation at the weekend? Well, it's 14 points. The good uh, are the uh, TDS, Terry by TDS Racing crew. Slightly controversial in that the uh, the way in which the Spa race ended meant that mm. there was a driver hours issue, but that was discounted because the race went to full course yellow. We'll not get into that because let's let's just have a nice clean race at the end. But it's 14 points is the difference. So realistically, the G-Drive crew, who are indeed the second place car, need something dramatic to happen to the Tyria by TDS crew in the final race. It wouldn't be the first or indeed the second no. time that's happened. So let's wait and see what happens there. The LMP3, you're quite right, has gotten the way of United Autosports. But uh, what we've seen throughout the year is that the kind of the, the, the gap, if you like, the credibility gap between United Autosports that started uh, very well and continued very well, the, the other car, the uh, car that uh, doesn't feature Alex on the 
uh, on the lineup. Just suffered awful luck two or three times. But uh, United also sports a bit of quality effort. But others have closed the gap. Graf Racing has closed the gap. Decade Engineering yeah. has closed the gap. It's going to be a good race in Estoril. And then GTE, where it would take uh, something pretty extraordinary to take the title from uh, JMW. Uh, motorsports uh 20 points they've got over the nearest rival which is uh, which is the beach dean amr uh, aston martin vantage let's not forget a newcomer team to the championship so it's been a good season for uh the aston martin crew it's been a great season for jmw and let's uh, let's not forget either they've got that 20 point lead despite losing a race win in the first round so they've had to fight back uh, from effectively 25 points down to get to where they are. So they've effectively managed a 45-point switch in four races, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, so looks like they're in the pound seats. And fingers crossed, you know, for all things that are, you know, that are um, how can we put this, uh, for, for those that actually enjoy the spirit of endurance racing that Jim McWhorter and his boys and girls do manage to get back to where, frankly, I believe they should have been this year, and that's Agreed. in the month 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely uh, agree with that. Um, just before we leave uh, ELMS, um, what's happening with uh, Mike Gouache, uh and, and his plans? Bit of news coming through from that. Uh, I have zero doubt that Mike is doing the rounds in Estoril uh, this weekend, uh, as will a lot of the other drivers looking for. My guess is LMP2. Mike, in the years that you and I have known him and followed his racing, has always looked mm-hmm. a step forward. Uh, he's done great guns to uh, you know, st- uh, sit alongside uh, Alex Brundle and Christian England to an LMP3 title. He's had the opportunity to observe where things are actually moving with LMP2. Zero doubt in my mind that he would be looking for an LMP2 drive. That's going to require the teams that say they've got a programme coming together to get those programmes together. But I think uh, I think there's, there's a team that's uh, featured on the BBC fairly recently that I believe <laughs> making a bit of a play. Ah, right. That would be... Uh, that would be Stuart and Sam at Algar Pro. Uh, yes, it would. Well, they, I mean, they're based down here, so the opportunity for them to to, to have uh, a chat would work out. I, I mean, do we know what their plans are for 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 the coming year? Are they? I mean, well, the, as, as anybody who's watched the BBC documentary will know that uh, Stuart Stewart is um, at times extremely straightforward, and uh, at the moment not being that straightforward. They've got a two-car effort in the Asian Le Mans series to deal mm. with uh, in the effectively the European off-season, so the Ligier that uh, we would normally have actually seen in the, uh, the European Le Mans series finale isn't going to be on the grid at Estoril because it's already on its way to Zuhai. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be joined by a second Ligier, this time a Judd engine car. Uh, that is, by the way, the same car that finished second last time in the hands of WRT and started the season in the hands of the So24 squad. So it did Le Mans ah. uh, with So24, it did Spa in the hands of WRT, and it will be doing Zuhai, Fuji, and the remainder of the Asian Le Mans series if plans uh, come to fruition there. Um, with Algar Pro, I think probably the first time an individual car has raced in mm. certainly the modern era in ACO Rules Racing with three separate teams. But uh, but they've and got is Mike, is, is, Sorry, is is Mike Moonham in, in, involved in in those efforts? Because I think he owns one of the cars, doesn't he? And he I believe is, so. Yeah, 
and the, the other car is, is rented. Amongst the other drivers, by the way, for Zuhai, Matt McMurray will feature, as will Step Duffeldorp. Um, so the they're not messing about. There's going to be, I think, um, a real opportunity for them to shine. Of course, the, uh, the, the real prize for them is that they've got an opportunity, should they win the LMP2 class, of course, to go to the Le Mans 24 Hours as the championship winners. So... There's a uh, four-car effort, uh, four-car kind of spread rather in LMP2 for Asian Le Mans. I'm sure we'll come to that one next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, for uh, the European Le Mans series, a couple fewer cars. In fact, three fewer cars than we've had for recent races with uh, both Argar Pro from LMP2 and Tokwith Motorsport from LMP3 uh, with their cars en route to Suhai. And also the Murphy Prototypes team won't be with us this weekend as they're still collecting the bits in a bucket from uh, the rather large shunt they had with the car at at Spa. So I'm afraid their car is auto combat and we're not featuring the finale. Ah, yes. Um, what do you expect to see this weekend then from Estoril? I've got a, this is a, a new circuit uh, for me. So... Uh, what am I? What am I going to see when I toddle up the road there tomorrow morning? It's how can we put this? Faded glory in the the nicest possible sense. What do you expect in terms of what you're going to see on track? You know those films where you see a kind of medieval siege and finally it breaks and they come storming the walls with, uh, with you know, uh, rather large chunks of wood and iron and basically <laughs> it gets uh, it gets terribly terribly excited and after the battle is done and the smoke kind of uh, finally settles uh, someone is victorious it's going to be a bit like that it's going to be a dogfight there's no no doubt about that whatsoever uh, let's face it most of those LMP2 cars it's a bit like you know the final touring car race of the weekend where, <laughs> oh dear <laughs> uh, yeah I think there's a, were we heading into a, a season where the um, these cars needed to be used again my guess is the parts bills would be extremely large but uh, in this occasion my guess is there's going to be a fair number of these cars put away not as the maker intended i don't mean that to say that it's going to be terribly physical i do think what we're going to see is a race that is aggressively contested and look out for a couple of driver changes too john uh with teams kind of angling for what's happening next season uh and one or two teams perhaps falling out with some of their customers uh, Graham, we'll get you back in the second half of the show. It is Midweek Motorsport, uh, and the first hour is done. Midweek Motorsport. And if you thought that hour was packed with insights and comments, wait till you hear what's next. Uh, well, coming up in the second hour of the 11th series, 38th episode of Midweek Motorsport. Uh, more from Graham Goodwin. I uh, will be talking about the FIA World Endurance Championship at the weekend, we'll have Marshall Pruitt talking about all things American. Some good, some bad, some sad news as well from MP, uh, our man from across the pond. Uh, some more of your tweets as well, at Specutainment and at Radio Le Mans. And that, uh, we'll go through a few of those in a wee moment too. But we'll be coming back to you uh, with a man who took his first WEC Championship win at the weekend. Because here at Midweek Motorsport, next, live, it's Andy Priel. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Good evening, Andy Priel. Hey, how are you? 
Hello. Uh, and, hello, Andy. Um, congratulations on a fantastic weekend. That's as near as a perfect weekend as you get, isn't it, in motor racing? <laughs> Thank you so much, mate. That was mega. Um, you know, it was, uh, let's say, you know, long overdue. I mean, the team have been just getting better and better every race. And obviously, we know the cars, you know, just absolutely uh, on the money. But the, the track suited us. The team did an amazing job with pit stops. And, and Harry, myself, and the two other guys, Stefan and, and Olivier, just, you know, managed to execute uh, the perfect race. And it was just great for us to, to, to win that first sort of six-hour race for Ford. You know, big, big special day for us, really. How frustrating has it been, certainly since Le Mans? I know that you guys had a, a programme heading up to Le Mans. Uh, the car was very new. You were working through a variety of different things. The US guys seemed to get a bit of a march on you. Le Mans, obviously, they came away with a victory, but you win as one, and I know it's one Ford. They talk about that an awful lot. The How frustrating, though, has it been not to have been slightly more competitive with the car, particularly when you look at some of the results that you're teammates stroke closest competitors of course in the US team have been getting yeah listen you know we, we went to Le Mans uh, really positive you know at that point we had a podium at Spa and um, you know we were we were second in the championship actually myself Harry and Marino mm. um, so obviously Le Mans hit us really hard because we were unlucky we had you know the gearbox failure on the grid but we, we qualified strongly um, we, we sort of shadowed, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, you know the, the guys from the US at that stage. We were right in the mi- in the mix of it, really. And Lamar hit us personally quite hard because um, you know we were un- unlucky on, on the uh, on the grid in our 67, you know, um, and we had that gearbox failure. And literally, you know, from that point, um, from Lamar onwards, we w- we went to every race, you know, really positive. But we had a lot of issues, you know, we had. Uh, you know the fire at Spa and at at, um, at the Nurburgring, which set us back, and and then of course we had um, you know various little gremlins kicking in here, there, and everywhere. But but to be honest, uh, John, we you know it's really difficult to compare to the to the stuff in in IMSA because you know one thing I sort of learned a lot about WEC this year is is that the racing is just really pure. You know, there's no mm. safety car interventions, no full course yellow bunch ups. You know. Um, Sometimes, you know, the best place to be, you know, in the IMSA um, championship is maybe not leading, you know, get a safety car at the right time and uh, pit, pit just before it and before you know it, you're back at the front. And, you know, in, in, in WEC, it's, you know, it's really different. So it's been a lot more about getting everything absolutely perfect. And, um, you know, we've got to remember that we're only... You know, I keep reminding the guys, we're seven, eight months down the road here. This team was formed and was being formed in January. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's um, we have all the right people in place, John. As you know, we've got all the top guys uh, in the team and all the fundamentals are right, but you've still got a bond. You still It's all the details. And, and those, those details really came together in Fuji. And, you know, before that, Austin and Mexico, the performance was there. You know, we... We had, you know, some brilliant um, stints, but we just didn't quite bring all the details together. And yeah. um, and the details just came together in Fuji. The car was 
performance, you know, the circuit suited us, and, and we executed, yes. I would say, the perfect race. You said there the circuit suited you, and that... You, I don't think you can underestimate that, Andy, to be honest. You, yeah. You're right. The guys in IMSA have a different balance of performance to you guys. It's a different type of racing. You're racing six hours um, with factory teams against you as well. All right, Corvette in, in the States as well, of course. Always very lively competition. But I, 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 I was getting slightly frustrated for you, particularly at places like Mexico. I heard a lot of questions from the press is the uh, saying, you know, what's the matter with the car? Where's your problem lying? When ultimately it, it's not necessarily one thing that was the issue there. It was yeah. just there weren't enough fast corners for you. That's a car, let's be honest, that was, that was built to go and win Le Mans, which it did. It fulfilled that in its first season. You can't expect it to be good round other circuits, particularly ones that, that look like little car tracks. Yeah, absolutely, John. You know, and as you say, you, you know, you've got to look at it over the whole season in WEC. This car was built for Le Mans. Le Mans is the biggest race on the planet, and, and that's the one that Ford wanted to win and still want to win. Um, you know, obviously, going into Mexico and, uh, and Austin, we just we didn't have quite the strongest package at that stage, you know, for whatever reason, um, the dreaded BOP, you can blame that, you can blame many things, but um, we, uh, you know, we weren't able to seriously win on pure pace alone. I think a podium, you know, in Austin was absolutely possible, but we didn't, uh, we didn't manage to, um, you know, to secure that, um, you know, and I think uh, Fuji just suited the car, as you say, long, steady state corners, very fast, very flowing, the longer straight on the, uh, on the calendar, um, it's it, you know it's absolutely you know it's made for our car, and uh, I think that's why it was so important for us to to really deliver that perfect performance this weekend. Our pit stops, I mean, were just unbelievable. Uh, every single stop was perfect. You know, there was two seconds between us and 66 car for for five hours. We were absolutely on the limit. There was nothing, you know, nothing left on the table. From both sides of the garage, and and I think that's really positive for the team to 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 experience that and to to also realise that they're now a winning team. Um, we're all capable to win these races, and uh, you know we've got to take we've got to look at the championship over the whole year. We've got to obviously focus on Le Mans; it's the biggest race of the season. But you know we all want to win a world championship again. And we all want to win races, not just at Le Mans, everywhere. And um, I think. Uh, yeah, we've we've taken one big step closer to to that reality, and uh, and 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 Fuji is a circuit that that is just perfect for our car, and uh, I think that's you know what what we've all got to be realistic about. It's uh, it's a long championship, it's a long season, and uh, you go to circuits that suit Aston like Mexico, mm. um, where they just lapped every single car of the field. Um, I think more than once, more than more than two, you know, twice actually. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of areas there that, that could be discussed, you know, I'm sure they're more political than you and I would like to get into, but um, everything just came together in Fuji, um, and, and the equalisation was, was, was much more, uh, I would say, uh, realistic for everybody, and, and we went out and won it. It's fantastic. And going to Shanghai, 
that's a circuit that, all right, maybe doesn't have quite the elevation changes, but on the surface, uh, literally, looks similar to... Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm told. Uh, absolutely. You know, it, uh, the, 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 the last two remaining circuits, I'm, I believe, are you know, going to be more suited to our car. But you've got to remember, John, as well, that every time we go to these tracks, it's new for us, you know, new, new for the car. And uh, we've got to establish the base setup. Um, you know, the computer sim obviously is one thing, but the reality and the acid test is, is what you experience on the track. And we've we've got to constantly, uh, you know, evolve our set evolve our setup from the first free practice to to the point where we can extract the maximum from the time qualifying. And then, of course, you know, the six hour racing and getting the the balance right for that. So. Each track we're going to at the moment, we're, we're learning mm. what's required. Very fortunate I've got a hugely experienced engineer who's been in this championship for quite some time. And uh, and also a lot of the guys in the team know this, this championship. So so that really helps us and we can sort of aim aim at what, you know, aim the targets as to, as to what we want from the car. But we could go out and, at Shanghai and, and experience something with tyre or, or the balance that's not quite right and, and we've got a bit of catching up to do so each circuit we go to now is, is new to us and uh, and we have to take that and you know and react as quickly as possible but looking at it on on a on a clean sheet of paper the next next two circuits i think you know we could be very competitive and uh, yeah the, the championship's one thing but we would like to win some more races first mm. and uh we are still in with a chance. It's a long shot, but uh, you know, let's let's go out and try and uh, just take it race by race and, and win 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 if we can and uh, get the points. You know, that's that's the goal. Uh, Share Adam. Any experience. Share Adam, our uh, Continental Tire Pertlin reporter for IMSA, is listening in tonight from Florida. Hello, Share, and reminds me that Chip Ganassi's slogan is "I like winners." So, yeah. given the extension of the program and that you and Harry now are the first and for the moment the only winners from the UK team how important is that for you for Harry going forward with this program absolutely um, it, it's it's so important uh, you know, personally for me and, and for Harry to, to get the first win was very special and as you say Chip likes winners it's a performance business um, but as a driver, you just have to commit your, to, to your process, and, and that process is to, to be the best you can be every single day and every single lap you do in the car. Um, and sometimes not always possible to win. You know, in Mexico and Austin, I believed I left nothing on the table. Harry left nothing on the table, and, and the result wasn't there. Obviously, to, to win, um, you know, and, and to execute what we did in Fuji, it, it is important. Um, it. it uh, it's something that, that means a lot to me, for sure. And, uh, you know, it was my 52nd race win of my career, and I hope there's many more to come. So, fingers crossed that uh, that we go into next season and, 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 you know, have a chance to win the biggest race on the planet, and that is Le Mans. Uh, that's one on my CV that I definitely want to win, and, uh, of course, to try and win another world championship. But I think, overall, um, it, it can only be good good uh, for, for our future um, within, within the team beyond next year. And... Uh, Hopefully we can uh, continue to perform at this high level um, over the next few seasons and uh, maintain this program to the highest level. Now there's a certain irony that I'm speaking to you um, from the Intercontinental at Estoril, Andy. Hopefully um, we'll bump into you 
somewhere else around the world. If not, I will see you in, I presume you're staying in the Crown Plaza at Shanghai with the rest of us. So, Absolutely. <laughs> all right, I'm mate, really listen. looking forward to my, uh, to my Crown Plaza in Shanghai. That's going to be really nice. <laughs> I've, been there, I've been there before, mate. You'll love it. Uh, yeah. best, best to everybody at home. Tell Seb to keep it up as well. We need to get Seb on the show in the next few weeks as well. Uh, oh, that'll be super cool. Yeah, no, great guys. Thanks, thanks for everything, and uh, you know, thanks to Radio Lamont for some fantastic coverage. I think you guys are keeping our uh, our families informed back here at home, and uh, we're all keyed into what you what you guys are all about. So, thanks for everything, guys, and really pleased to uh, to be with you tonight. Cheers, mate. Congratulations to you and Harry. Say hi to him for us as well. Actually, I'll see him down here, won't I? Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andy. All right, guys. Cheers. Bye. Andy Prio joining us uh, live on. Midweek motorsport tonight after that landmark victory for Chip Ganassi for Team UK. He and Harry Tinkle taking uh, their debut victory, the team, uh, sorry, uh, maiden victory for the team uh, out in Fuji at the weekend. Uh, Graham Goodwin is back with us, um, brings us on nicely to uh, Fuji. We'll talk about the big talking point of the weekend, or a couple of big talking points of the weekend at the moment, but let's talk about the racing, particularly um, let's, uh, Fuji. We'll talk about the big let's, uh, let's talk about that Ford victory. They were dominant right across the weekend, Graham, and during the race, um, effectively, I mean, it wasn't as far away as they could have been, but they basically bossed GTE, bro. Uh, it just looked as if they were in a different class completely. Uh, the, 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 it wasn't, uh, you know, a major change to balance of performance for anybody else. It was certainly a change of balance of performance for uh, for the Porsche and for the, the the Aston Martins. And okay, the Porsche finished at the back. I'm afraid that's what we've come to expect this year. It's completely outclassed. I'm afraid in the 2016 company, but uh, you know it was an upside down sort of uh, finish. Aside from that, with the two Astons not able to really get close to the Ferraris or the Fords uh, at Fuji, but uh, they, they were in a different class, and I mean I mean that in the nicest possible way. Oh yeah, uh, pretty fault free. There was uh, I think a quick spin for the. Uh, Olivier Plast of a Mooka car, and there was a bit of contact from the number 78 with uh, with Harry Tinknell at one point. But, uh, 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 well, one of five um, lap records went the way of Harry Tinknell in the, in the Ford. Every single class in the race uh, had a lap record uh, this weekend, this last weekend. And uh, Ford had, you know, a race to savour and... Um, I think we we pulled a bit, a bit of leg pulling. I think when we were calling the uh, the podium at the end, but a broad smile from George Howard Chapel. Um, you know, it's not something you see very often. God bless him. But uh, I popped along to see George after the race, and uh, yeah, he was there. Would you believe stacking the chairs? It's on the job sheet for him. He stacks the chairs after the race, but. Uh, that that is a team that's coming together nicely, and as Andy quite rightly reminded us, uh, it's still a very new squad. Some of them have come from Pro Drive, some of them have come from the uh, the Nissan P1 squad. They've come from all over, lots of familiar faces. Uh, but it takes a while for these things to gel properly when you're up against the kind of quality of Aston Martin Racing, of AF Corsa, and for that matter, of Proton Racing. And LMP2, extraordinary. I, I used that. I've used that word a bit actually, but that was a phenomenal race. Question mark: Was that the best LMP2 race over six hours 
that we've seen in the WEC. Somebody said on, on Twitter over the weekend, by the way, um, that was six hours of racing, not just a six-hour race. And that was a perfect summation, particularly in P2. Uh, I think... For me, it was it was gripping. I mean, uh, until we started to get the uh, the LMP1 race coming together at the end, it was the race worth watching. That was the one that kept your attention. It's great to see that. You know, you call the IMSA races, John, and and very often the best race is actually in the GTE LM class and sometimes in GTD. But it's great to see that you know the focus was very much on LMP2 rather than the LMP1s for a considerable period. That's great. That only helps in terms of uh, the way the championship delivers for those teams. But boy, did the drivers deliver. And again, we had a lot of people who are new to the championship uh, this weekend. As I said uh, a little earlier, extraordinary that that's Alex Brendel's first win. It was uh, Roman Rusinov's record 13th. He now joins, uh, again, Pedro Lamy on 13, and I'm trying on Jim, uh, Jamiro Bruni on 13. So three different drivers, three different classes, you know, are the, the drivers with the most wins in the championship across, you know, uh, across the board. And Will Stevens, I thought, the driver of his racing life from Will right. Stevens. Forget for a moment the, the incident that saw in the wrong side of the white line. I think that was over-exuberance. I think it was his mistake. Um, and I think it was the right call to penalise. And I think you and I were both delighted that it uh, was a bit of constructive race direction and stewarding that actually stopped that from being a drive-through penalty, which might have robbed us for a grandstand well, finish. Well, and, and therein lies the rub because there was a great piece of officiating. Um, that's not in the regulations, per se. Um, and I thought that was brilliantly handled. On the other side of that, I thought the Audi situation with the number seven car in LMP1 was poorly handled. In a week yeah. where Marcus Schurig uh, has come out with a very, very good argument in auto, uh, motor und Sport, which a lot of people uh, sadly plagiarised um, maybe thought they could get away with it because it was in a foreign language. A lot of English language journalists were just, frankly, lazy and copied it. Um, that was Marcus's story. Um, it was well argued. Marcus, you and I know Marcus. He doesn't... He's not He's not like me. He doesn't put two and two together and make five. Um, he, he has researched that. He knows the people concerned. I think what I said to you was the only thing that was missing from that was a quote from Audi, and clearly there was no quote going to be... You're never going to get that, are you? You're, no, no, you're never going to get that. Think, but to be right, it's it, he's a journalist of quality. It's a piece of quality. Um, it is written as effectively informed supposition, but you can be guaranteed, as I've said in the piece I've popped up on Daily Sports Car this evening, that there's no doubt in my mind he will have been working his contacts book to see what parts of that he can get stood up. And the way it works, for those that aren't aware, the way it works is... You know, you're not going to put your neck on the line like that. Certainly, if you're not a, a, a German journalist with a German factory team uh, future being discussed, you're not going to, to write a piece like that with or without a first-person quote, without being damn sure of your research. And uh, it's a worrying time. Um, you know, it, it has to be said for anybody that uh, is is you know, a fan of and in the business of sports car racing. If the future of Audi's uh, program is on the line it has been to the line before uh in the in the not that re- uh, not uh, that distant past and things can change uh but boy oh boy oh boy will uh, audi be pushing very hard indeed for a uh, win as soon as they can get one 
I, particularly given that, though, the insistence on Audi with effectively withdrawing that car. And for those that didn't know, there was a MGU failure, front axle, front motor generator unit failure on the seven car with Trellyway in the first hour, 17 laps in into the race. And uh, basically that car could not have made it to the end as it was. Audi Yost made the decision, and I think a brilliant decision, to do a bit of backwards engineering on that car. They had to disconnect and, in fact, take out the drive shafts. Now, the drive shafts at the front are absolutely part of the homologated car. They're, the motor generator unit is absolutely a homologated part of the car. But this is, this is something that's making the car less efficient, not more efficient. It's making the car... It, you know, it's like the car dropping down a cylinder. What do you do? If, you, if, you, if this is endurance, surely the point is to get it to the end. When Porsche at Bahrain with Weber's car, the car that eventually won the championship, used a bit of a tie wrap and some ingenuity and a bit of silver paper, chewing gum and some jam to make the potentiometer, to bypass the potentiometer, a homologated park, by the way, in the throttle system so that Mark Webber could drive the car by turning it on and off on the master switch instead of having to use the throttle to get that car at the end and win the championship. That was a brilliant piece of engineering and an even more outstanding piece of driving. And I think when we saw Marcel Fesler getting within three seconds, three and a half seconds of a good lap time in that car with compromised front braking, with compromised power, I think the right thing to do would have been to let that car run. I completely agree. I mean, you, by the way, you've forgotten the case of Mark Webber's car, the uh, rubber ham and the uh, ordinary household bleach that was used in, the, in that particular <laughs> occasion. But I mean, and some uh, for me, the, 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 the spirit of endurance, we say this all, uh, all the time, the, the spirit of endurance, the sporting ethic that lies behind everything that happens in, we hope, every major motorsport uh, championship. But the WEC, you know, wears that very much on its sleeve. And I am disappointed. I have one question and one question only, which I'm afraid at the moment has remained unanswered, uh, simply because we haven't had the time to ask it, which is, had they not told them that they would have been effectively disqualified, could that car actually have finished? I'm asking that question for a reason, because it is a nice excuse, isn't it? If you can't get it home to say you would have been disqualified anyway. But my, my, my... yeah, and, and if if it was simply an administrative decision, I'm disappointed with it. I get it. I understand what the rule book says, but for me, that's the kind of decision that should have been taken post race, uh, and you know, and in the in the calm and let the team actually do their job. Yes, we're looking at it at the moment in the context of a situation that it, that maybe probably is in the background. They were about the future of. Let's face it, John. The, the uh, sporting effort that has defined certainly my career, and I suspect yours too, for the last decade and a half and more. And, it, you know, if, if that's where we are right now, it's a worrying kind of prospect. As far as the, the effort that over the last weekend's concerned, well... You know, Audi have got their backs to the wall. There's no doubt about that. They're in the, the the ridiculous situation of having, by far at the moment, the quickest car of the lot. But they cannot get those cars to the end uh, on, on the top step of the podium. And has the, is that the, the, the point at which people have lost patience? Well, I hope not, because uh, the way that those races have 
gone south for them have been a varied kind of bag of circumstance. But uh, it certainly kind of helped, can it? Uh, no, indeed. And, and just to put a bit of meat on the bones before I move on, um, Audi ballasted the car up to the correct weight with the drive shift shafts taken out. The ballast was put in a safe position as in accordance with the rules. Dr. Ulrich seemed to suggest that they felt the car could go deep into the race. Um, and uh, Audi asked for clarification on the rule themselves and were told that the car would not be classified, so they decided to withdraw it. Um, Let's just make all of that absolutely clear. Um, Quick word about Toyota. Um, I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary drives from all of the drivers. The tactics were perfect. It seemed the longer we got into the race, the closer it got in in some respects. And talk about monkeys off backs. If Audi needed that win, my goodness, so did Toyota. And it's double word score because it's in their own track. Well, if you're looking for a cheery story to kind of balance, counterbalance the Audi rumours, then let's try this one. If there was going to be one thing which would secure a third Toyota for what I'm going to describe (laughs) as a part season next year, because I firmly believe that the the prospect here is probably Silverstone, Spa and Le Mans, if it happens, uh, then I think you've just seen it. Uh, my guess would be that's just added a massive weight on the pr- plus side of the scale um, for us to see a third uh, Toyota for the 2017 Le Mans build-up. And that can only be a very good thing. As for the crew, uh, well, lots of people were talking about uh, the relative pace of the three drivers. Mike Conway, I think, uh, after having a rocky middle part of his season, is definitely on the up. Stefan Sarazan. Uh, again, anchored that effort brilliantly. Kabubi Kobayashi, though, a defining driver for him in sports cars. His first WEC win. He didn't win in the Ferrari campaign uh, some uh, some years ago. He hasn't won so far, of course, this year in a Tota. I think, Graham, that was his first win since his junior single-seater career. It was uh, his first win, because I looked it up earlier, uh, oh. since January 2009 in GP2 Asia. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, so there's so certainly there's there's that kind of side to it. The one thing I would say, by the way, because it's apparently something we didn't see, um, is I can explain one thing which the listeners certainly would not have seen, and some of the viewers definitely wouldn't have seen because we didn't. We saw Loic Duval having a bit of a, a heart-to-heart with Dr. Ulrich straight after the flag. Uh, I believe what that was about was there was a, uh, a observation by Loic. Now, we saw, didn't we, on the penultimate lap, something like three-quarters of a second was the gap and coming down fast. They both then encountered traffic, turns 15 and 16, and Loic Deval believes uh, that Kamuko Biashi dealt with that traffic by going all four wheels off the track. And indeed, that was the defining moment of the last couple of mat laps. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take anything away from that, because oh, no. that, for me, was a supreme drive and a supreme race from Toyota. It was a great fight back from Audi. It was a great way to finish that race. It finished with yet another superlative on a weekend of superlatives, the closest qualifying session in WEC history and the closest race finish in WEC history. Uh, absolutely extraordinary stuff. And we've still got two more of these, John, uh, for, for our, our old tickets to survive before we finish this uh, this extraordinary season. Arguably, the biggest story of the weekend uh, was 
before racing even started. Mark Webber deciding to call time on his motor racing career, certainly stepping away from the FIA WEC. I caught up with them early in the week, and my first question for him was the obvious one. Why was now the right time to stop? Uh, basically, energy levels, uh, risk management, everything all rolled into one. Uh, you know, emotionally, you, you change a lot, obviously, with age. Uh, time goes quick as well. Uh, you know, family, parents, uh, you know, it's all on the radar that, look, hang on, it's like, okay, it's been very, very focused around my own career and myself, and uh, I've loved that, enjoyed it. And now it's like, okay, what uh, what is next? But also, often in the last while, I've got in the car and asking myself, what, why am I in here? Mm. And that's obviously the obvious reason. So uh, yeah, it's a, a real easier decision to make. And uh, you know, Tim, Mel, and Brendan, and I—I I mean, that's been the hardest part of the decision, probably, in terms of uh, where that's been going in the last few, especially the last two years. Um, but they've been, you know, obviously council in terms of the decision and told them and and so yeah everything together ultimately was just like you know what yeah i am ready for a change up in pace world championship last year um le mans do those ticks in boxes do those make that decision a little easier uh yeah i came here with a job to do for porsche the whole program if you like you know for me to be uh i mean also i thought the other day i've been in team, six teams world championships in the last seven years so that was quite interesting uh yeah obviously with the red ball and porsche and and so that was really enjoyable to be involved in them returning uh and i knew this was like a honestly i didn't know if this was going to be a long-term cockpit job for me um and you know, got the world title, with, which was nice. Um, but between us guys, we know what we did, and that's what's the most important thing for me. Um, you know, Tim on Brendan and Kyle and even Jeremy Lashion, who's change engineers this year on, on Car 2. Jeremy was involved in our program last year. Le Mans this year was awesome for us pace-wise. My side, I was happy with Tim. All of us did what we could, and we had a, we had a technical. So, um, And that's Le Mans. You know, there's so many things outside the individual driver's control for that long, long race. And I could pound around there for another five years, and it's just not something I'm prepared to do. No. Um, but you're driving well, and, you know, you got your head around this sports car thing pretty quickly. Took you less than half a season when you first came in. But here, actually, I thought was really when the tide turned for both you and Porsche, interestingly. And, you know, you, you've really done a, a good job. It sounds, though, as though it wasn't that big a... Not a bigger decision, difficult a decision. And you're going to stay on. We're not going to lose you from the sport. And certainly we're not going to lose you from the Porsche family. No, that's right. Uh, very much inside the Porsche family. Uh, the board have been great with me. Uh, obviously, they were <laughs> a bit... Torn on the decision as well mm. in terms of uh, you know we'd love to have him in the cockpit a bit a bit longer but they were very uh, accepting of the decision and um, you know my big motivation was also uh, with them to to continue I will come to some races next year uh, the team already asking me about uh, dates and and so for sure I'll be at Le Mans uh, and and some other events outside the yeah, inside the Porsche uh, LMP1 program so. 
yeah, that's 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 it really. Yeah. And you still get to get the GTRS as a as a <laughs> as a road car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The toy the toy the toy boxes are still pretty good, and uh, you know it's such. I mean, it's it's so awesome to have you know a brand that you, you're working for, but also so uh, so so proud and so. Uh, the jealousy factor for people with your <laughs> opportunity to drive all the road cars, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what we can do. I mean, and we're, we're, we're difficult to please, us drivers, you know, and yeah. when you can say, yeah, this is what's coming and that's what we've got, and they're like, oh, wow, you know. So that's a nice, uh, nice, uh, nice bonus. When you left Formula One, you came here. Now that you're leaving here, is that driving done now? Or, you know, might you pop up somewhere else, doing something else? Or is it just goodbye from the WEC? I think it's a big chance that it's that it's over. Um, I think, you know, when you drive, I've loved and I've been very, very fortunate to drive the fastest cars in the world. Uh, and that's something that uh, is not easy to accept when other opportunities come up. I mean, I've had lots of other little things thrown, thrown past me, but um, it hasn't really spun my wheels. Uh, because mm. when you can do, you know... Uh, certain things that I've experienced with the Formula 1 car and also with this car and the 919 and you're like it's very very hard to find something that will give you that same stimulation after that so you know for me I think that um, I mean touring cars forget it Um, you know and and GT pretty much unlikely I'd say I mean it would have to be obviously with a Porsche but I think that would be very very unlikely Bathurst 12 hours Porsche no I don't think so okay okay I saw you in Formula Ford 1600 in the UK on the British Touring Car Championship packaging. I think we were working, that was 1996. Um, I'll see you at Bahrain. There's been a lot in between. Thank you from all of our fans and from me as an individual for the entertainment and from the way you've conducted yourself behind the wheel and in front of the mic. Cheers, mate. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, it's been great uh, working with you guys too and the passion and enthusiasm, uh, the consistency. Uh, we all came through this sport together and, and you know, we've, uh, it's a very tight-knit community and, uh, yeah, I've been, it's been, I, I realise just I, I don't take for granted what happened in my career and um, it's great to, to be able to now... Uh, Tell a few stories uh, with uh, with all the guys and, and journalists, and you guys were all were all part of that uh, great journey together. That was Mark Webber talking to me at Fuji. By the way, we weren't talking over the national anthem uh, on race day or any other time. That was just a bit of a practice uh, early on in the week. Um, Eve's just uh, sent a message through to me to say that Mark sounded tired there, and I I I have seen a change in in Mark since he came into the WEC, Graham. Um, I'm not going to say the twinkle's gone from his eye. It hasn't. He still, you saw it at the weekend, he's still tremendously competitive. But it, it does seem that his love for the sport is diminished. I'm not saying it's gone, but it's certainly diminished. And he's looking at it through a different set of eyes now. Uh, 100%. I mean, after you'd finished that interview, there was a bit of a round table with a... Uh, uh, a group of uh, you know full season kind of media, and I was you know lucky to be one of those. And having heard what he'd said to you, having heard what he'd said to the press conference the day before the event press conference, Mark was added to after the announcement that he would retire. Uh, he mentioned at that press conference 
motivation to get up at five in the morning at Aragon to do the testing. And if he wasn't prepared to do that, it wasn't fair to allow his, ask his teammates to do it. He said to you about energy levels. He then went on to talk about family factors and referenced his mum, having not enjoyed his racing for quite some time. He referenced his wife and that uh, I think she was worried. But I actually asked the question, was the one tipping point? And he immediately referenced the accident in Interlagos two years ago. And I think that was the beginning of the end for him. I think, you know, he'd realized that, you know, this was racing at a very high level. He stepped up his his game, certainly over the last couple of years. He's, he's driving extremely well. But uh, he also referenced, John, a couple of times some of the, the driving standards at the, at the amateur end of the WEC as being something that we're of concern. I think he's just realised that perhaps the balance between enjoyment and risk now is something that he doesn't have to do. And that's fair enough. Um, he's been an extraordinary ambassador for the sport as a whole and for the championship uh, I think in particular, for the WEC in particular, it's great that we'll still see him around. I don't think at every race, but from time to time. Um, and, you know, I think we can just be thankful that actually Porsche th- uh, thought out the box and uh, pulled Mark Webber's hand, uh, yeah, yeah, name out of the hat. And we wait and see uh, whether or not it's Nick Tandy, whether or not it's Earl Bamber, or whether or not they change direction completely and pull someone else into the mix. But uh, for, for, for me, to everybody involved there, I'd just like to say thank you for bringing Mark to the championship. I think he's been great. Yeah, agreed. I think the... The key words there were other priorities. Um, we may or may not find out uh, what those are. Mark recently married, of course, just turned 40 as well. Mentioned his family a lot there. We wish him and his new wife, long-time partner, uh, and uh, both his mum and dad the very best, as uh, as Mark Webber, has, as I said, has given us a lot of entertainment. Graham, um, we'll, we'll talk about the ramifications of that, I'm sure, as we get towards the end of the season. Uh, the championship season far from over in most of the categories. Although we have to say congratulations to Rebellion for tying up the private ears championship. Graham, thanks very much for being with us tonight. I'll see you at the weekend here at Estoril. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, uh, with uh, the uh, the talk on sports cars tonight. Uh, this is from Angus Fox. Uh, who can blame Weber? Gentleman, amazing racer. Uh, like Jensen Button, he'll be missed. Matt Hunt uh, reminds uh, everyone that uh, he had a, a BTCC programme from Thruxton with a rather young Mark in it. Uh, that was in the uh, British Formula Ford Championship, uh, which I remember very, very well uh, indeed. Could Ozzy Grip be a reserve driver in the 24 hours of Le Mans like Alex Vert? Could be. Don't know whether he'd want to be, though. He was fairly explicit, wasn't he, about uh, stepping stepping away Um a lot of people say it seems that Mark's been the happiest they've heard him in his recent career, racing career and uh, very relaxed. Dave Alcock said, sorry to hear Mark leaving WEC. Could he be a replacement in the commentary box? Well, I'm not ready to retire yet unless Porsche were going to give me his job. Thanks very much. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so this, uh, I think generally speaking, everybody uh, wishing Mark uh, the very, very best for whatever he decides to do. 20 minutes before the end of the programme, Midweek Sport, Motorsport, Series 11, Episode 38, and from Racer.com, Marshall Pruitt is on the line now. Packed programme tonight, it really has been. Hello, Marshall Pruitt. Good evening, Marshall. How are you, mate? 
I'm all right. I'm all right. More to the point, how are you? Because we start off this evening with some very, very sad news. A great friend of yours, acquaintance of mine. I didn't know him as, as much as you did, but certainly someone who gave his very, very best years to the sport. Uh, lost his battle with injuries. Uh, sustained in a, another bizarre uh, pedal bike, bicycle versus uh, automobile accident uh, recently and uh, I know you, you were very close to him Yeah, our friend Ron Mathis uh, got to know Ron in 1999 I believe it was when we were both at uh, the Hogan Racing Kart IndyCar team together he was an engineer, race engineer and I was a junior engineer and uh, yeah, just stayed in touch as best we could over the years, um, you know, with some of the various projects he worked on. Then when obviously he uh, arrived at uh, Audi Sport Champion Racing towards the end of the R8 ALMS program uh, leading into the R10 program, uh, Ron was there and, and was responsible for one of those cars. Had done many things before, long before I met him. And uh, done a lot of really interesting things since. Was a part of the uh, winning uh, X Prize for the Edison Two vehicle, which earned a check for what was it? I think five million dollars or something like that. He'd just done so many things. A, a, a peerless engineer, someone who was truly, truly uh, respected and revered in the industry because he was just such a warm and soft-spoken person in a in a position where. As you've probably seen, Heidi, uh, if there are territorial pissings to have and shouting matches to engage in, uh, you tend to hear them from team principals, engineers, or drivers. And uh, Ron was a silent force, uh, somewhat of a silent force in engineering. But, yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, in the uh, Southern California desert uh, where he was working on a project, uh, was taking the bus to and from work and uh, had a small fold-up bicycle, typical engineer, uh, the <laughs> lightest lightest thing that uh, he could find uh, that would allow him to fold it up and carry it on and off the bus. And uh, on uh, just the sh- very, what I'm told is a very short uh, bike ride from the bus stop to uh, where he was living um, to work on this project, was uh, struck by a car and uh, fought like heck during his time in the intensive care unit. Uh, was placed in an induced coma. Uh, I don't. I'm a little bit fuzzy on the exact man, uh, exactly how some of these things happened. But uh, um, uh, came out, had spoke a little bit, uh, was back into a coma, and uh, then effectively was unresponsive, and was unresponsive for a long enough time for uh, I guess his primary doctor in the ICU to recommend to the family to move him to hospice care, which uh, hospice, for those who aren't aware, is another term for end-of-life care. And uh, within days of being moved to uh, the hospice, uh, Ron died. That was uh, Tuesday morning at about 2 a.m. And, uh, yeah, A, we lost a really good one. Mm. And B, uh, as I will, uh, (laughs) I don't mind saying, make sure you wear your helmets while riding bicycles, friends. Yeah, good point. Very, very good point. We um, we wish uh, the very best, and obviously our our sincere condolences to to Ron's family and to his many friends. And there are many friends of Ron uh, around sports car paddocks and indeed motor racing paddocks uh, around the the world. It, it's been a, a, a sad week, MP, um, because of course it was the five 
the anniversary of Dan Weldon's death as well. And uh, certainly, even I, I was aware swapping bits and pieces uh, down Skype lines and uh, various bits and pieces. And uh, a lot of people uh, know how long I go back with, with Dan, um, right through his early single-seater careers. And uh, what I, one thing I didn't know about him was his penchant for strawberry daiquiris. And uh, which is amazing that he used to take the mick out of me for drinking martinis, telling me martinis was a foo-foo drink. And I only found out after his death that he, uh, his favourite drink was strawberry daiquiri, uh, which I would have taken the mick out of him mercilessly for. He managed to get away with that one. Um, uh, but uh, five years seems to have gone by in some ways in a, in a heartbeat. In some ways, it seems a very long time indeed since that day, that fateful day at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And I think that was the greater sentiment that I heard from most people. Uh, a, how did we get to a five-year anniversary of Dan's loss? And B, man, that little fart made enough of an impression <laughs> on everybody that how Should is we- he not standing next to us making fun of us, you know, calling me a fat bastard or what, you know, um, <laughs> That's but uh, again, I, I don't want to sound old and just full of reverie. But uh, I guess when you do, you know, if you've happened to be alive for a couple of decades, you realize that you're very fortunate to meet a select, very select number of people who have a sustained impression and impact on your life. Hopefully, a positive way. I mean, heck, you can. All, I guess it could also be a negative. But in Dan's case, you know, the older you get, the more you realize that. Wow. You don't come across that many people like him, and getting to know him, getting to call him a friend, um, boy, that was pretty special. And uh, yeah, uh, again, for a lot of those that knew him, the the general refrain was, you know, man, I think of that guy all the time. I hear him in my head all the time. He, you know, yeah. uh, the only the only thing I don't get are the phone calls from him or getting to see him, but it feels like he's still here. So um, he isn't. Unfortunately, uh, but you know, a there are many of us who are blessed to know uh, to know him, and uh, it, it's also good to know that uh, he is still held with uh, such high regard. And uh, I mean, I, I can tell you that just from the reaction to a variety of lovely stories, there weren't many, uh, but a variety of lovely stories that were written about um, the, the, this anniversary, just the reaction to them, the volume of, mm. of folks that sh- shared or liked or commented, you name it. And I'm not just talking about, you know, with my clients just in general. It says a lot. I mean, the worst thing would be to say, hey, this is the X year anniversary of someone's death. And, you know, the Internet goes, eh, um, with Danny Boy, you know, we love him. And uh, I think yeah. we'll always love him. I'll never be able to buy a pair of training shoes without thinking about them. He had a bit of a uh, a bit of a fetish for for training shoes. Um, um, let's let's move on. Uh, and the sport goes on, of course. And both of those two guys would accept that, and uh, absolutely expect us to be to be talking about to be talking about other things uh, this this evening as well. In fact, I. I suspect that uh, both of them would be rather disappointed that we were talking about their demise rather than talking about the sport. But uh, um, we're not going to let those two be uh, be unremembered. Uh, what's happening with Kevin Magnussen? Kevin Magnussen, is he going to come to IndyCar? Is he not coming to IndyCar? 
Well, I think that's the answer to that uh, is in the hands of our friends at Renault Sport. And I think also uh, probably uh, young Mr. Palmer as well. It's not as if uh, either driver or let me that team has not given its drivers much to work with. Uh, I think they, the team has also expected far too much uh, during a, a relaunch period uh, where, you know, last year the uh, under different branding, they didn't exactly flatter with a rookie and a sophomore driver. I don't know why they expected for their, their fortunes to change in any <clears throat> significant way this year yet. We've heard nothing but uh, kind of grouchy, uh, questioning comments from senior management about Mr. Palmer, Mr. Magnus. And all that being said, if you had to keep one of the two, knowing that there's only one seat open right now with uh, the inbound Nico Hulkenberg, uh, I, I think Kevin would be the first choice. Uh, but regardless, if Renault does indeed sign someone else to fill that second car, we know that uh, Kevin would be looking for a new ride, period, uh, as would... Uh, his teammate, but I think between the two, you know, it's quite interesting. If Renault keeps Kevin, he'll be a Formula One driver, obviously. If uh, he finds himself out of a drive, I know that uh, Honda has continued to express great interest in having him in IndyCar. They did last year. Uh, there were talks with the Andretti Autosport team this time, roughly this time in 2015, uh, about him joining the team that actually ended up turning into Alexander Rossi who has now signed, a, I believe, a three-year extension, which is fantastic for him. But I also know that, based upon his availability, there is a continued interest in having Kevin in the car. Granted, of the and there's also some, uh, I, I won't put a number on it, but there is a significant seven-figure uh, incentive that has been packaged with uh, having Kevin on board. So, how's this? We also know that uh, Takuma Sato is looking for a ride uh, with his AJ Foyt team switching from Honda to Chevy. Uh, Takuma has always carried uh, incentives from uh, the home team as a Japanese driver. Uh, he has carried uh, particular support from uh, the Japanese brand. And where would he land? What's open? What's available? Well, there's a prime fourth Andretti seat. There mm. could be could be a fourth uh, Chip Ganassi racing seat since they have moved to Honda and we've uh, yet to hear whether uh, Max Chilton would re-sign. Uh, there's Dale Coyne racing and there's not a whole lot else. So to me, Heidi, the question is timing. When, if and when, we would hear about whether Kevin would be back or not and uh, whether the team would uh, want to, the Andretti team would want to wait for that or whether they might try and get something done with Takuma Sato or if someone else, uh, and there have been suggestions of others that might be looking in, none that I've, I've heard are concrete yet, but uh, it's all a matter of timing. Uh, if Andretti gets close to someone else uh, that has the funding, then I don't think they'll be waiting for Kevin. But if they're not, if they don't end up being pressed for time, uh, I think they could definitely wait and see. Yeah, uh, just a matter of time, as you rightly say. Uh, DPI and LMP for... Uh, IMSA, getting close to those cars hitting the track in a in a test. Um, are we getting any closer to, to finding anything out? We've, we've documented before on this program the fact that manufacturers seem to want to make announcements on their own terms and normally auto shows, which none of us think is a bad thing. It brings new people in. But there, there are 
a lot of people in the sports car world who want to see these new cars, who want to know about the deals being done. What's happening? Yeah, I got confirmation of a, of a date for one manufacturer when they will launch uh, today, uh, and I can't put that in print, but uh, uh, I'll mention in my uh, next DPI update. It's been a little while since I've done a DPI update. I mean, we kind of covered everything there was to cover um, uh, through, I think, about August or so, but I've been a little bit lazy on that front. So I'm going to do an update hopefully for Thursday or Friday and get a little bit more specifics about when we uh, should see at least one of the two manufacturers, pending manufacturers. But, yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, we're at that stage where cars are have either hit the track or are about to hit the track. Uh, as Mark Raffoff, IMSA's head of the DPI project, told us, what, I think uh, around Road America? Uh, you know, the cars would be testing, uh, cars would start testing in September in stock bodywork. And then, uh, as the bodywork was completed, just more of a production timeline thing, uh, the custom bodywork would start to appear mid to late October. And from the things that I've heard, that sounds about right, continues to sound about right. Uh, so I, the one big question uh, right now for me, Heidi, is whether the uh, the official testing uh, that takes place, whether we will see some of uh, these DPIs maybe in bare carbon or similar uh, in November uh, running around in various places before they have the big showy glitzy dry ice mm. debuts at an auto <laughs> show uh, or not. So again, we know that they will of course ask the teams not to put photos out and whatnot, but yeah. you know whether an intrepid photographer uh, beats them to the punch or not, can't say exactly, but we know that we're going to see them within a month, uh, within just about a month uh, when they uh, two of the cars debut at the auto show, and um, we could see the third one soon, you know, in or around that same timeline. How how dynamic is this change of bodywork going to be? And I'll, I'll tell you why I asked that question. I've been told by a couple of people that at least two of the three manufacturers that we know are coming are doing very little more than a headlamp treatment and uh, perhaps in the case of the Nissan uh, that will have to have an engine cover redesign from the standard Leisure because of the twin turbos. Are we going to see things that are not that much different from what I'm going to now start calling the global LMP2 cars or is it going to be something that immediately we're going to see is as different as the Corvette bodywork, let's say, was for for the Daytona prototypes. Yeah, I, I've heard I've heard a little bit of the opposite, so it'll be interesting to see what you know which bit of info turns out ah. to be correct. Uh, I I have heard that the Nissan is not going to be more than you know what is required. And granted, the requirements are actually there. I, you can't even say there's a hard requirement. Uh, I mean, there's absolute. You know, guidelines provided by IMSA on the areas that they want modified uh, to stand out as distinct, but that doesn't mean you start have to adding all kinds of weird things just to satisfy that. Um, so, when I spoke when I spoke with Michael Carcamo uh, during Petit Le Mans weekend, you know, he said, "Look, just ahead of this, uh, this more should I say?" Yeah, I asked essentially the same question: "Hey, how adventurous might you go on your bodywork?" And you know, he said. 
I think some folks interpret it as doing nothing more than headlamp treatments. But we said, look, you know, we've got a, a twin turbo V6 to, to plumb and to fit in, and that's going to require necessary changes to fit that uh, bodywork-wise as well. So it's, it's to your point, Heidi, side pods, engine cover, there's going to have, you know, there will it will need to have changes done to it because at least uh, for everything that I know, um, the, it would be the only uh, twin-turbo V6 installation uh, of any DPI that's coming in. The, uh, the Cadillac is uh, using the same naturally aspirated V8. The Mazda is an inline-four, so just in terms of what they have to fit inside, there's no real changes there. With Now, granted... Liget has obviously had the uh, twin turbo Honda in the back of it in the uh, in its current chassis, but at least going forward, this would be something a little bit new that they would have to do. So it'll be interesting to hear about what's happening there. I've heard the Mazda is supposed to be super gorgeous and pretty. I can't believe that the uh, our friends at GM Cadillac would do something just very boring, uh, knowing the bar that they've set with the Corvette DP bodywork. I think which was by far the most beautiful dp ever made uh, i i'm sure there's an understanding that they would have to do something creative there now this last thing to quickly wrap up on this and it's maybe pulling a little bit out of left field but uh they really truly expanded their uh, pratt and miller uh expanded their aerodynamic department in order to produce the indycar aero kits which debuted in 2015 uh obviously with uh gm working with delara on its DPI, uh, they would be able to rely heavily on Delara from a bodywork design standpoint. I would have thought or would imagine that there's also been a fairly heavy influence from GM, especially on the Pratt & Miller side, but it's also worth noting that uh, the person who headed the Aero Kit project uh, left at the beginning of September to go Ooh. to the Haas Formula One team. So, now granted, now, this is all stuff, if we're back-timing things, obviously he and or his department could have been involved in the uh, the Aero side of what's coming with the DPI before he left. Just saying that, you know, from a, a resource standpoint, I don't know how heavily GM has been involved there. You know, they won't even acknowledge that the program exists so we will find out soon <laughs> how sexy, how far it went, and uh, who has the prettiest DPI. MP, thank you very much. I know it's been a tough week for you, fella. Um, I'll send you a big man hug uh, across the ocean. I'm staring at the Atlantic Ocean at the moment. Uh, I know you're on the other side, but uh, all the best to you, fella, and we'll have you on the show next week again. Thanks, brother. Marshall Pro from Racer.com bringing to an end this uh, 38th episode of Series 11 of Midweek Motorsport. Thanks to all of our contributors and guests tonight. Well, I think eight different voices we had on this evening. Particular thanks to Alex Brundle and Andy Prior for dropping into the show, both literally and on the line. Tim Gray was our executive producer, putting it all together seamlessly. Responsible adult back in the UK, Eve Hewitt. I'm John Hindoff. And there's no time to explain. The Llama was very distressed that Johnny Palmer didn't mention it last time. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com. 
the RadioLeMond.com Travel Club is the best way to get to the biggest motorsport events. Ready-made packages or bespoke itineraries for Le Mans, Daytona, Sebring, the Nürburgring, Spa and Bathurst, and many more. We've got them all covered so you can be there. Accommodation, flights, ferries, trains, and the all-important race tickets. Our travel partners are APTA and Atoll Bonded, so you can book with confidence. Start planning your trip today with the Radio Le Mans Travel Club at RadioLeMans.com. 